the privilege is again ours to assemble on the as the shades of evening come about us on this Lord's Day, this first day of 2012. And the blessing that does come with it allows us to appreciate the gift of singing that we've just enjoyed, the opportunity of prayer, the marvelous wonder of surrounding the table, and also to give thought to the Word of God. And tonight, as we begin a brief series of lessons on the book of Job in the Old Testament, I hope that we can each be encouraged and edified in perhaps a special way as we give thought to this book that is nestled in the midst of the Old Testament. The book of Job is, in fact, a rather remarkable book in many ways. As you give thought to some of the features of it, this initial lesson of the series, as you perhaps can already tell, is basically an introduction in which we will give some thought to the opening two chapters of the book. But although it ought to be admitted that these two chapters do set the entirety of the stage for virtually everything that's to follow. After all, if we were simply to open the book to chapter 3 and start reading, we would have little appreciation for anything that would be said, for anything that would be described, and for any of the conclusions that might be reached. For it's only through the focus, through the spectacle, if you please, of those first two chapters that any of the rest of the book makes any sense. It is for that reason that a more extended discussion of these two chapters will take place tonight. As we give some thought to the book of Job, I suppose it would be entirely right to at least begin with an introductory thought, and I've tried to countenance it in the following way. We have found it beneficial and somewhat fruitful on many occasions to make a particular study of a certain book of the Bible. At one time or another here at Pippin, we have looked carefully at the book of Colossians, for example, in the New Testament. We've looked carefully at the book also of Revelation, for example. In the Old Testament, we've done the same to the book of Nahum, as well as 2 Samuel and even some others. It'll be our intent to do the same kind of thing as it relates to the book of Job over the next few Sunday evenings. It is for that reason I would encourage you as the weeks go by to read the entirety of the book, and especially for next Sunday evening, if you can at all this week, try to read the next four or five chapters. That is, have read by that time the first six or seven chapters of the book of Job. We'll try to describe as nearly as I can some of the sequences that take place for the book naturally divides itself into a circle or a set of speeches. And I'll try to explain as the lesson goes on tonight why that comes about and also how we can use that to assist us in the book. As you can see near the bottom of that list, this book does produce a rather wide range of emotions among those who give it some consideration. There are some who quickly assert that it's confusing. There are some who quickly say that they would even deny that the book is inspired. There are others who would assert that perhaps not as much as confusing, they simply get little from it. We can rest assured that it is a part of the inspired canon, and as such, God does have within it some things that are useful, some things that you and I should strive to take and use day by day. Not only that, it might be fair to notice that many questions throughout the centuries have been raised. Was Job a real man? Or was this just a story? Were his three friends real? Or again, were they just made up fictional characters kind of like Shakespeare's Macbeth? Is this on par with some kind of mythical work? Or was Job real and were the circumstances described in the book authentic? I think we should perhaps address questions like that one as we start the study tonight. 
It is with those kinds of things in mind that let's come and make a listing of five important points as we begin the study of the book. First and foremost, let's answer that most recent issue that I raised. Was Job real? Were the circumstances of the book real? I should be quick to say that there are many who would allege very strongly that Job was not a real character. They will argue ever so strongly. In fact, I'd like to present to you one statement from C.S. Lewis, who is a rather well-known writer on religious topics, and this is what he had to say. The book of Job appears to me unhistorical because it begins about a man quite unconnected with all history or even legend, with no genealogy, living in a country of which the Bible elsewhere has hardly anything to say, because in fact the author quite obviously writes as a storyteller, not as a chronicler. And you might notice I quoted that. I would ask you to notice that this author uses the phrase quite obviously. He doesn't even think it's worthwhile arguing over the thought. He's convinced that Job was not real. He's convinced the events of the book were not real. They were a presentation by some rather astute ancient writer intended to tell a story and nothing else. I think you and I could though strongly argue just the opposite to that and it would seem to me the Bible strongly argues oppositely to that. In fact, I would invite you to consider the other places in the Bible where Job is mentioned. It is interesting that the person named Job is mentioned in other places in the Bible. How do the other Bible writers refer to him? Do they refer to him as if he is an unhistorical figure? Or do they refer to him as if he actually lived, as if he actually suffered, and as if he actually told lessons whereby you and I should benefit from them? The book of Ezekiel is the first one to which I would invite us to turn. In the 14th chapter of Ezekiel, we encounter a very pressing set of teachings from the mouth of God Himself. As the God of heaven, in fact, through Ezekiel, warned the people of Judah, who by that time had gone into captivity, he had this rather strong lesson for the people of Judah. Now, in order to perhaps identify the thought behind this statement that we're about to note, the people of Judah had gone into captivity, and they had gone into captivity because of their sins. They, by their own wickedness, by their own rebellion to God, had been sent into captivity, and that was as punishment for their evil doings. As a commentary on that, God, through Ezekiel, said to them in chapter 14, verse 14, Though Noah, Daniel, and Job were here, they could only save themselves. God, in essence, said that even if the man named Job, even if the man named Noah, and even if the man named Daniel were here, their preaching, their perfectness of life, their completeness of character would fail to convince any of these people, and those three would only be able to save themselves. Now, might we pause and ask, in that context, Noah is listed, in that context, Daniel is listed, and in that context... Job is listed. Was Daniel a real person? Was Noah a real person? You and I have no doubt that they were. In fact, the flood came in Noah's day, and Noah built an ark and saved not only himself but his family. And they were the only eight that did, in fact, experience salvation from that great flood. 
No question, Noah was real. What about Daniel? We have historical artifacts that characterize and detail the reality of Daniel. No doubt he was a real man. Doesn't it seem odd if Job was just a mythical figure? If he was completely unhistorical, what lesson would there have been to Ezekiel and to the people of ancient Judah if Job were listed and if he were not real? Such, of course, makes no sense, does it? Job was a real person, and Ezekiel testified to that fact through the character of the words of God. Six verses later, the same statement is made again in Ezekiel 14, verse 20. No question, from the writings of Ezekiel, Job must have been real. In the New Testament, Job is listed once. In James chapter 5, we have in that remarkable little book of practical New Testament gospel living, the remarkable fact that James wrote about the patience of Job. You have heard of the patience of Job. Might we again state that if Job were not real, if Job were just a made-up mythical figure, what lesson would there have been with regard to his patience? But after all, you and I are admonished that we too ought to have the patience of Job. And isn't it interesting that since Job was real, you and I also can enjoy a real sense of patience, a real sense of enduring comfort, and a real sense of dedication to the cause of God. We can conclude Mr. Lewis, with all due respect, was in error. Job was as real as any of us sitting here today. He walked on this planet many centuries back, but he did suffer mightily. And you and I have the chronicle of that suffering in the book we call the book of Job. Beyond that, what other lessons might we learn about the nature of this book? The second one is this one. The setting of the book is also an intriguing one. I would ask you to notice the first five verses of Job chapter 1. These five verses read as follows. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was perfect and upright and one that feared God and eschewed evil. And there were born unto him seven sons and three daughters. His substance also was seven thousand sheep and three thousand camels and five hundred yoke of oxen and five hundred she-asses and a very great household. So that this man was the greatest of all the men of the east. And his sons went and feasted in their houses every one his day and sent and called for their three sisters to eat and to drink with them. And it was so, when the days of their feasting were gone about, that Job sent and sanctified them, and rose up early in the morning, and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. That leads us to at least make the following thought. If Job was a real person, and we've already stated tonight that he was, a very good question might be where did he live and when did he live? It would seem the book of Job gives us enough detail as it at least allows us to assert a potential answer to those questions. First of all, where did he live? The text tells us in verse 1, he lived in the land of Uz, U-Z. We each might immediately ask, well, where in the world was Uz? Is that a place that still exists? If it only existed in the ancient world, where was it? There are some clues in the book that perhaps pinpoint a bit more carefully about the approximate location of the land of Uz. 
I've listed those clues in the following way. First of all, in verse 1, or rather in chapter 1, we learn in verses 15 and following that Job's animals were attacked by the Sabaeans. So it would seem that the Sabaeans lived at least near the land of Uz. Furthermore, we notice in verse number 16 and following that the Chaldeans attacked Job's possessions. That leads us to note that the Chaldeans also apparently lived near to where Job did. Furthermore, we can notice that something is said about one of Job's friends. One of them that we shall discuss more carefully beginning next Sunday evening was from Teman, which was a place very near to Edom, and you and I thus know very well where that was. Putting all three of those clues together, it would seem that us was very much in the area of southwestern Arabia. In other words, you and I might say it's in southwestern Saudi Arabia, at least by virtue of the countries of the world today. Thus, knowing at least roughly, it seems, where Job lived, that leads us to, in fact, ask another question. What was the character of this man, and what else could be asserted about him? The first five verses pointed out powerfully, didn't it? that Job was a very well-to-do man. He had thousands of possessions in terms of animals. Those were numbered in terms of sheep, in terms of female donkeys, in terms of camel, and in terms of oxen. For a person in the ancient world to have that many of them, Job was a wealthy man by the standards of the ancient world. That wealth is seen so amazingly in the fact, too, that his household was great. That's the explicit statement also to be found in chapter number 1. As you can appreciate about the thoroughness and power of Job's great household, we also learn in this chapter he had many servants. It's fair to say that Job indeed was a well-to-do person, but that's not all we can say. Job was married. His wife will be mentioned in great detail in chapter 2, and in fact he was blessed with ten children. As you can notice with me in verses 4 and 5, of those ten children, we're told especially that three of them were girls and seven of them were boys. We are not told at this juncture what their names were, but later in chapter 42, we will be told the names of the three girls, oddly enough, at least for right now. You might also appreciate the fact that this description is given. It is said in verse number 1 and following that he was the greatest of the men of the East. The greatest of the men of the East. What a powerful compliment to a man named Job. He was real. He existed and had the characteristics that we've listed so far tonight. But perhaps we should go even further. For we might also be a bit more specific about the character of this man. Having stated a bit about the physicalness of his possessions, let's turn our attention to the kind of person that he was. Was Job a good neighbor? Was he a person who in fact strove to follow God? Notice again with me, if you would, verse number 1. It says, That man was perfect and upright. What does it mean to say that Job was perfect? First of all, that word does not mean that he was sinless. It does not mean that he lived a life of sinless perfection. Rather, that word in Hebrew means complete. Job had all the aspects and facets of completeness in his life. 
we might pause to notice that you and I are also admonished to be perfect in that same way. Matthew 5, verse 48. On that occasion, in the heart of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus told all of us to this day, Be ye perfect, even as our Heavenly Father is perfect. You and I thus are admonished to be like Job in that sense, to strive to be complete, to be well-rounded in terms of perhaps growth in all the important matters of life. Wasn't it true of Jesus? In Luke 2 verse 52 it says, He increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus developed socially, he developed emotionally, he developed intellectually, but he also developed spiritually. We today should each strive to develop and to mature in all of those ways. And it would seem that Job also had striven to mature and complete himself in all of those ways. You'll also notice it says he was upright. But does not mean he stood up in contrast to a gorilla or an ape? That word upright, as you can see, means right. Job tried to live rightly. He wanted to live what's right. He wanted to do what's right. He wanted to proclaim by way of example what was right. Job, by way of these two words, he strove to be complete and he strove to live rightly. However, the inspired writer went on to say this. Verse number one, he feared God and he issued evil. The first of those speaks for itself. Job was a believer. He had confidence and assurance and reliance in God. He feared God, and that too is a command for all of us. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God, it says. Ecclesiastes twelve thirteen. What about that latter part? It says he eschewed evil. What does the word eschew mean? E-S-C-H-E-W. It is interesting that you and I too are commanded to eschew evil in 1 Peter 3, verses 10 and following. As you give thought to what that means, the idea is simple. The word means to turn aside from. Job had no interest in doing what was evil. He had no interest in pursuing, even though it was popular, what may have been evil. He turned aside from it. He avoided it. He strove to have no part in it. So far, the first verse of this book of 42 chapters has complimented Job remarkably. Let's look a bit further though as well. We notice it would seem that he walked with God. And by that I simply mean he had an intense interest in his children living righteously and he even offered sacrifices on their behalf. As the book grows onward, we learn many things about Job's reliance and his interest in doing the things that were approved by God. As you can also well imagine, we notice that the setting of the book points out something rather odd. I might be quick to say that there is an extensive controversy about this next point. So I will simply state it and leave it as a bit of an open consideration. If we ask when was the book of Job written and when did Job live, obviously the book doesn't come out and date it. We might well say, though, that since the Chaldeans are mentioned, surely Job lived in some period of time when the Chaldeans were an existent race and group of people. Same is true of the Sabaeans in verses 14 and 15. It is for those reasons we might ask, when did the Chaldeans 
occupy a notable position of Old Testament prerogative. Certainly we know that they did in the days of Nebuchadnezzar, and certainly they did in the years preceding that. But how how many years preceding? That opens the question that some have asserted then that Job lived in the days of Solomon. That is, he came after David, and he basically lived in that time frame when Solomon was the king of Israel. I must confess that that seems a bit problematic to me, but I will at least leave you to make the final decision for yourself. As you give thought to the fact Job offered burnt offerings, in the days of Solomon, the only one who was authorized to do that was the high priest. That is to say, those of the Levitical family were the only ones that were allotted and permitted by God to offer them. And yet in this book, Job offered burnt offerings, and so too did the three friends, according to chapter 42. That leads me to suspect that the events of the book transpired prior to the days of the Levitical, of the Levitical priesthood, prior to the days when the law of Moses had been given. And if that be true, that means that the events of this book transpired in the time frame of the book of Genesis in the Old Testament. Now, it might be a bit interesting to notice that there are two verses. In Genesis chapter 10, verse 23, as well as verse 29, reference in that particular chapter is made to a man named Jobab, J-O-B-A-B. Could Jobab be another ancient way of referring to Job? Perhaps. Perhaps not. A little difficult to be too dogmatic about that, but it is a bit interesting. You'll also notice in verse 29 of that same chapter, reference at least makes us think about the character of the book of Job. I say all of that to say that it may well be that the book of Job is the earliest book in all of the Old Testament in the sense that it was the first one written. If it did take place in the days of Genesis, that means it was written by someone other than Moses, but that it took place prior to the days of the life of Moses. If that be true, it was the first book in all the Bible that was written. I'll simply throw that out and leave that for us to perhaps consider. It might well be that we should also point out that there is one instance in this opening chapter when Job is called a patriarch. Now you and I think about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob being called patriarchs, for the book of Genesis calls them that. But it might be interesting to note that Job also in this chapter is in the Hebrew called a patriarch. It is for that reason that I tend to think that Job was the first book written and that it is the oldest of the Old Testament books and that it did take place in the time frame of the book of Genesis. But be that as it may, we do appreciate well the fact that the next lesson is in fact this one. We come in chapters 1 and 2 to what is often called the prologue of the book. I use that word because it seems such a fitting word, but it might well be good to ask, what is a prologue? A prologue is a short writing that precedes a longer writing, and the prologue describes enough detail so that one knows what's going on in the main writing. It's in essence a kind of introduction to the book. The first two chapters of Job are a marvelous prologue to the rest of the book. 
I would invite you to, in fact, rehearse with me that which is laid forth to us in these two chapters, the prologue. In verse 5 of chapter 1, or rather verse 6 of chapter 1, we find the events that transpire as follows. The text simply says, There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Who were these sons of God? They appeared to be angelic beings or those who had access to the throne of God. But we notice in that same verse that the adversary, Satan, also appears with them. We immediately begin to notice that amongst those that might have been reckoned as noble and those that might have been reckoned as good, there is the adversary, the one who walks about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, 1 Peter 5, 8. He too is able to carry on a conversation with God. And it is a remarkable thing in the next verse when God next says, Whence comest thou? God may well have addressed all of the sons of men, but we have the conversation He carried on with the devil. And God says, Where have you been? Whence comest thou? And we notice quickly that Satan answers. Verse number 7, From going to and fro in the earth and from walking up and down in it, the adversary had made the statement. He had been aware of the events of earth. He knew what was going on up and down, sideways in regard to the lives of those who were living on it. God next says in verse 8, Hast thou considered my servant Job? It's still amazing. God was the first one to mention Job. It wasn't Satan. As this conversation went on, it was God who said, Have you given thought to my servant Job? And look at how God goes on to describe him in verse 8. There is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil. It was God who complimented this man on earth and said, There is none like him. He fears God. He walks uprightly. He eschews evil. He's a perfect man. Wouldn't it be wonderful to think about God describing you or me that way today? As He addresses the devil and says, Have you considered my servant? Put your own name in that blank. Would it not be uh, the highest compliment of all to have the God of heaven catalog you to the devil and say, Have you looked at my servant? He's noble. She's upright. She eschews evil. He, in fact, is perfect. But you'll notice with me, Satan answers next. Doth Job fear God for naught? That is an unforgettable question. It was now Satan who impugns the righteousness of Job. It was now the devil who in fact questions it. In essence, he says, God, Job only serves you because you've been so good to him. Look at all those possessions he's got. Look at all the finery and the luxuries he enjoys. He's only good because of all that you've given him. If you take all that away, he'll curse you. He'll renounce you, Satan said. In fact, in verse number 11, he put it in language like this. But put forth thou thine hand, and touch all that he hath, and he will curse thee to thy face. Satan's accusation was of a very low repute concerning Job, wasn't it? He thought Job's uprightness and Job's piety was only because of the physical possessions that he had. In verse 12, the Lord replies, 
Behold, all that he hath is in thy power. Only upon himself put not forth thine hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. God had given to, this, to Satan on this occasion the power. You may touch those possessions, but you may not take his life. And so it was in the verses that follow, beginning in verse 13. There was a day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And there came a messenger unto Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the asses feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them away. Yea, they have slain the servants with the edge of the sword, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. So while Job was enjoying a festive time with his children, there came a messenger who had, according to verse 14, who had some very bad news. Those 500 yoke of oxen, they were in fact, the word plowing doesn't mean they, they were in fact being used to literally plow a field. You may notice that the very word present there is one in Hebrew that means they were grazing or at least residing in a particular place. As you give thought to the nature of that word the servant said, the Sabaeans came, fell upon them, and the text says, slew the servants and took the animals. But yet while that servant was speaking, more bad news came. Verse 16, While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, The fire of God has fallen from heaven and hath burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. So before the first person, the first messenger could finish his story, another messenger came and said, Fire has come and destroyed the sheep. Not only that, the servants have also been consumed. I am only escaped to tell you. More bad news has come. Here, within the matter of moments, Job has lost his sheep, he's lost his oxen, he's lost a whole host of servants. But yet there's more bad news coming. Verse 17, While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, The Chaldeans made out three bands and fell upon the camels and have carried them away. Yea, and slain the servants with the edge of the sword, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. Job had already just moments earlier learned he'd lost his sheep, he'd lost his oxen, and now one of the most prized possessions of the Middle East is a camel. And now suddenly he learns from another messenger that the Chaldeans have come. They have not only have slain all the servants that were tending to those camels, but they've taken away the camels. In just a matter of moments, Job has gone from being wealthy to being a man who is a pauper, having almost nothing. But yet notice, more bad news is coming. Verse 18, While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, Thy sons and thy daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And behold, there came a great wind from the wilderness and smote the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young men, and they are dead." And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. So Job wasn't with them when this calamity, this catastrophe came. But we notice a mighty wind came. Whether it be a tornado or some other kind of cyclonic activity, I don't know. The text doesn't say. But we do know that this fierce wind, which is well known in that part of the world, it came, it smote the house in such a way that its support was removed. The house crushed upon those inside. At least the three sons died. 
we notice something interesting is said that in, in amongst those of the three that died, it perhaps suggests that all of them died. And chapter 42 seems to suggest that as well. At this point, might we notice that Job has gotten four pieces of almost unimaginably bad news. In a matter of moments, his camels, his sheep, his oxen, and his children are dead. All he has left at this point is his wife. Can you imagine the hurt, the anguish that would be inside? Can you imagine if one heard all of that bad news in such a short period of time? You can well imagine that verse number 20 begins to give us Job's reaction. Then Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head and fell down upon the ground and worshipped and said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. We have to perhaps highly commend Job for keeping his emotions intact. It would have been so easy to perhaps fall apart emotionally, to be overwhelmed in grief, to accuse God. But yet the text says Job did not sin in all of this, nor did he accuse God foolishly. It is amazing, he noted in verse 21, that naked he had entered the world and naked would he leave it. He noted that God had given, but also that God had allowed things to be taken away. And he ended it by saying, Blessed be the name of the Lord. As chapter 2 opens, the saga continues. Satan is going to enter the scene again. I would invite you to notice how it enters. As it does so, it is amazing that another conversation ensues. For there was a day when again the sons of God presented themselves before the Lord. We notice quickly in verse number 2, It was again the Lord who to Satan said, Whence comest thou? Amazingly enough, Satan answers just like he had before, from going up and down and to and fro in the earth. Satan indeed wanders about knowing exactly what's going on in your life and mine. We notice in verse 3 again, it was God who again speaks, and it was again God who mentions this man named Job. That has always been such an impressive thing, that it was God who first mentions, Have you considered my servant Job? Since now Job has been afflicted so much, let's notice exactly how God refers to him. Verse number 3 of Job chapter 2. Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil, and still he holdeth fast his integrity, although thou movest me against him to destroy him without cause." Here God even says, despite the fact he has lost his camels, his oxen, his sheep, and his children, still he maintains his integrity. I freely submit, I would hope that all of us, in the face of catastrophe like Job had faced, could be described by God like that. He or she still has his or her integrity, despite the fact of what they've suffered, despite the fact of what they've faced. Satan, though, now speaks again. And he says in verse 4, Skin for skin, yea, all that a man hath will he give for his life. But put forth thine hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse thee to thy face. Satan has a lot of audacity, doesn't he? 
Here was Job who had already lost so much, and yet Satan still says, God, let me tell you something. He still is only serving you because he's got his health. If you will take that from him, he'll curse you to your face. Satan has a lot of gumption, as the old saying goes. I wonder today how he is accusing you and me before God. What's he saying about you and me? Take this away from him. He or she will curse you, God. Have you ever wondered what Satan's accusing God of you about? Here he had already, in fact, said enough to where God had permitted Satan to take away so many of his possessions. But now Satan has as his interest the very health of Job. God, if his health is taken away, he won't be faithful to you. He'll curse you. How did God reply? In verse number 6, God says this, Behold, he is in thine hand, but save his life. As you can see, God was willing to allow Satan a measure of freedom with regard to touching the physical character of Job's life, but he could not take his life. We notice in verse 7, this is what Satan did. So Satan smote forth, or rather Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot unto his crown. And he took him a potsherd to scrape himself with all, and he sat down among the ashes. Perhaps that suggests that one of the most uncomfortable, one of the most miserable things that could occur to any person is to be afflicted with this malady that God, or rather that Satan brought upon Job. It's one that you have a disease that will bring death pretty quickly. But apparently here was a kind of malady, a kind of disease in which there was open putrid sores that hurt and ached all the time and you couldn't get rid of them. All you could do was scrape away the dead skin on top of it and hope it would heal. As day by day you'd scrape this all over your body and no healing was to be found, perhaps the misery was beyond imagination. And yet this is what was brought upon Job. In fact, look at what his wife said to him in verse 9. Then said his wife unto him, Dost thou still retain thine integrity? Even she was amazed. Job, how do you stand it? Curse God and die. Sad his wife wasn't any more encouragement to him than that. Sad that he had no encouragement from his wife more so than this. Even she said, Job, why don't you curse God and die? It is to be noted that beginning in verse number 10, Job had something to say to her. Job said, Thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. What? Shall we not receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this did not Job sin with his lips. Though he'd lost all that he had, to this point in the book he had not sinned with his lips. Isn't that amazing? Should we not lift Job high and appreciate the kind of man that he was, the depth of his religion, the character of the kind of person and man that he had been? In the last three verses of chapter 2, we find that there were three friends who did have as their interest to comfort him. And this is the way the chapter ends. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came every one from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, and Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite. For they had made an appointment together to come to mourn with him and to comfort him. 
And when they lifted up their eyes afar off and knew him not, they lifted up their voice and wept, and they rent every one his mantle and sprinkled dust upon their heads toward heaven. So they sat down with him upon the ground seven days and seven nights, and none spake a word unto him, for they saw that his grief was very great. These three friends made an agreement. They made an appointment that they would come and try to be of some assistance and encouragement. Isn't it still amazing that when they came from a distance, Job was in such a sorry condition they didn't even recognize him. Oh, what a grieving state Job was in. It goes on to say that when those friends did come, it says, they were so overwhelmed with the calamity that had come upon Job, they lifted up their voice and wept. Here were grown men openly crying because of the calamity that had come upon their friend. The text goes on to say that for seven solid days and nights, they didn't speak a word. They were speechless. They didn't know what to say. They simply sat there in hopes that their presence with him might be of some comfort. Have you or I been in a station of life in which you and I knew someone overwhelmed in grief and we too didn't exactly know what to say? For a solid week, they simply sat with him, watched him scrape the sores on his body, put sackcloth and ashes on themselves apparently. And with that, the prologue closes and chapter 3 will open next Sunday night. As you can, I can imagine, that leads us to notice this as well. The grief that comes upon it leads us to a very brief listing of some key ideas that we have seen in the prologue and that will guide us through the rest of the book. These key ideas, it seems to me, are these. First of all, Job's knowledge. Job knew that he was suffering. That much is clear. But it also is significant that Job did not know why he was suffering. And that's the part about the book that's so intriguing. Job knew that he was suffering, but he had no idea about this discussion that had taken place between God and the devil. He had no idea about the discussion and the reason that this difficulties had come upon him. He had no idea. And in fact, as you and I proceed through the book, God never tells him. He has never made known that background. That'll be an important point as we revisit some of the things in the lessons to come. Second, Satan in these opening chapters has made a claim. He has made the claim that nobody serves God simply out of an intense interest in being right. Job said first, or rather the Satan first of all said, the only reason that Job is righteous is because you're so good to him. And then after all that was taken away, he said, the only reason Job is righteous is because he's got his health. Satan, in essence, has made the claim that nobody serves God out of an intense interest in being simply righteous. We're going to have to see in the book if that's a true claim or not. Lastly, we notice that this book puts before us the problem of human suffering. In fact, that's the central message of the whole book. What can you and I say about suffering? Why is there suffering in this world? If God is good, why does He tolerate it? Especially in the life of those that are Christians. If someone is dedicated to his cause, has turned their life over to serving him, why does he let that person suffer? Why does he let things come into that person's life that brings great sorrow and agony and heartache and disappointment and grief? Why? 
as the book unfolds, we'll see if we can't provide the answers that are given in this book to that question. And with that, the curtain closes on the lesson tonight. As we have begun our study of the book of Job, we have seen that it is a, a valuable study in many ways. It will help us, I hope, to come face to face with the reality of why God included this book in the Old Testament. It's there for our learning, Romans 15, 4. It's there for our comfort. It's there for our study. And it's there for our benefit. I trust that over, over, the, over the succeeding Sunday evenings, as we give our consideration to the book of Job, that we too will be encouraged and will be edified by our knowledge of this great and wonderful Old Testament book. Might we say, though, tonight, that the outcome of the book eventually is going to be positive. Job, in fact, at one point will make reference to a daysman. He'll make reference to one who could plead his cause with God. And today, my friend, you and I have that luxury. Jesus is our advocate with the Father, 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2. He is our mediator between us and God, 1 Timothy 2, verse 5. Have you made use of the mediator? Have you let him plead your cause and case before God? If you haven't, why not tonight? Why not become a Christian? If we could help you, we'd be honored to do that. You must believe Jesus to be the Son of God. Repent of your sins. Confess the name of Jesus as the Son of God and be baptized. If you've done that but haven't been faithful, come back to your first love, Revelation 2, 5. We'd be more than delighted to assist you in praying with you and in praying for you to God for your forgiveness. If we could help you tonight in either of those ways, Brother Jonathan's going to lead us in the singing of a hymn, and if we could help you, why not come? While together we stand and while we sing.